Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. I trust that you have found your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I just want to remind you what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. Paul has been addressing the reality of the Corinthians' unloving hearts and the selfish approach they had taken to their church community. It was very unfortunate. And that was expressed in their careless and self-centered use of their Christian liberties. Last week we saw how important it is that the Christian be exemplary in self-discipline and in all things. And the way that fits into Paul's argument is pretty obvious. If the Christian is to be characterized by self-discipline, if the Christian is to be characterized by self-restraint in all things, then wouldn't we also assume that the Christian should also be characterized as exercising self-discipline, self-restraint in the matter of our Christian liberties, in the exercise of our Christian liberties. Especially we know that the exercise um, of our church uh, discipline may hurt other uh, believers, uh, causing them to stumble for which we must give an account, the the demand of the exercise of our Christian liberties, rather, in, in the in the church, our lack of discipline in that area, cause great harm. And that's not love. That's obviously not love. It's not love for others, and it's not love for God. Now, how could you do that if you know that the exercise of your Christian liberty is going to lead a fellow believer into, st- into sin, cause him to stumble, cause him to follow back into a former manner of life that the God that had redeemed them from, Christ who bought them, had redeemed them from? And how can you just go on with it and demand that you use your liberties because it is your right to use them? And with the audacity, like the Corinthians said, well, because I have knowledge... I know that it is my liberty to exercise these certain things. Um, I have greater spiritual maturity. Even though love is really the true sign of spiritual maturity, and the Corinthians didn't have that, their knowledge has puffed them up. And that is really ridiculous. But, But here's the catch. A lot of people think that they can get away with it because they really don't care if they run over other believers. Like we've said so many times before, And we'll say it again, and we'll continue saying it as we progress through this letter. Our Christian liberties are not rights to be exercised. Nor is the exercise of our Christian liberties marks of our spiritual maturity. Our Christian liberties are rights to be restrained. We are free in, in Christ to refuse the exercise of our Christian liberties, the things that we have the freedom to do in Christ. So, as we come to chapter 10, Paul in effect says, You don't understand 
you don't understand how to use your liberties at all. You think you are spiritually mature, and you think because you are spiritually mature, you have the right to exercise your Christian liberties, run over other believers who aren't mature enough to use their liberties. Well, you don't really understand God's design for the church. You're not just affecting others who are weaker, even. But you're opening yourselves up to temptation. And not only that, but in verses 1 to 13, Paul actually shows us how the misuse of our liberties can lead us to ineffective service to Christ. Many people don't understand that reality. They don't mind demanding the rights to use their Christian liberties to the detriment of other believers because, well, that's your fault anyway. Because you're so spiritually immature. That's sort of the rhetoric that we hear. They also don't take into consideration how the demand for the right to exercise a Christian liberties adversely affects their own sanctification, their usefulness in the kingdom. I remember when I was in college, uh, I think I was a junior in college, and we got this new recruit one year on the track team, and he was the top javelin recruit in the entire nation. And so there was a lot of excitement on the team. Um, there was, the team was sort of a buzz when uh, we knew that they were, we were getting this new javelin thrower. He was a freshman. He was the number one javelin thrower in the whole country as a high school student, and everybody wanted to meet this guy, and even the other throwers were excited because this guy's going to be on our team. And being on our team, there's no doubt that he'd be able to provide us with valuable input, and we him as he succeeds in throwing and continues to develop, and he's going to provide some real, he's going to be a real asset to our team. Well, it turned out that this kid was a complete know it all, he was real arrogant. And, um, and a bit of a recluse. Didn't really have any interest whatsoever in the team, doing what was best for the team. Didn't want to talk to anybody and certainly didn't want to receive insight or help or coaching from anybody, whether it was from his fellow athletes, who might not have been better throwers distance-wise than him, but certainly uh, had no more knowledge in the technical aspects of throwing, which would have helped him throw further. But nevertheless, he didn't, he didn't want that kind of help, and he didn't want coaching from the coaches. He downplayed the knowledge of our coaches, ridiculed them, scorned them, wouldn't listen to them. And I remember someone saying to one of our coaches, uh, who, of whom w- there were no small stuff. I mean, our coaches didn't come out of nowhere. Our head coach had the world record in the double decathlon. I'm not sure if he still holds that or not, but he had the world record in the double decathlon. Our assistant head coach was on the U.S. Olympic team, and then our other uh, field-specific coaches also had very notable records, most of them having um, had time on the U.S. Olympic team as well, or at least made the U.S. Olympic team standards, went to nationals, held all, all kinds of records, and so on and so forth. And someone said, hey, coach, what is with this guy? What is with this guy? I mean, who does he think he is? And our coach said, very humble man. It, it took quite a lot to ruffle his feathers, and he was certainly never 
motivated to defend himself or his own integrity or his own knowledge. And he just said, don't worry about him. He's going to reap what he sows. And they had enough experience to know that when you get a guy who takes his own counsel, they had gotten top recruits in the nation before. And when you get a guy who takes his own counsel and is so puffed up that he'll only take coaching from himself, that guy just sort of peters out. He doesn't make it. He reaps what he sows. His arrogance will be his own destruction. And really, that's just what happened. And the, the kid did okay. He was reasonably competitive and, and regionally even very competitive. But he certainly was never able to throw to his full potential. And it wasn't long before he wasn't really the big star anymore and nobody really paid him a whole lot of attention. His name was pretty quickly forgotten. It's interesting though, I'd forgotten his name even, but I did not forget the name of a friend of mine, a friend of mine who came in a very average recruit, very average athlete as a javelin thrower, and maybe, if anything, a little bit below average. And so he came in his freshman year. He was a year behind me. And, uh, and we would throw together. I, you know, we, we would generally pair up with somebody who was about equal in our abilities. And, um, and so we wouldn't mind criticizing one another because uh, we were both below average. So we weren't offended by one another's criticisms. But this guy worked like a horse. And he went out of his way to get help. And before you knew it, it was that guy who was setting all the records. And I remember thinking, by the time I graduated, I can't believe it. No one ever knew what an asset to the team that guy would be. But he worked hard. He was self-disciplined. And he was humble because he was humble, he was willing to receive instruction from his fellow athletes, and he was willing to receive instruction from his coaches. Well, Paul says something about that in our passage. In verse 12, he says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Now, obviously, in the spiritual realm that we're talking about, the stakes are a lot higher than an athletic career. And the Corinthians, like many of us today, were incredibly self-deceived. Not only did the abuse of their Christian liberty harm other believers, but because they thought they were mature enough to handle their liberties, they themselves became spiritually weak and fell into temptation. And Paul uses the nation of Israel as such a warning to them a warning to the Corinthians that this is what they were about to become. You are about to become like the Israelites. Did you know that it could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others? That was actually on one of those demotivational posters. You have seen the motivational posters that teachers have in their classrooms and sometimes they put up in work spaces and things like that. I remember reading one one time that said, if you have the kind of job where 
you need a motivational poster, you probably don't have a good job. I just thought that was funny. They're supposed to be funny, not offensive, just in case you're wondering. But, but this one in particular said, did you know that it could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others? And, and that fits perfectly into Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about what happened to the people of Israel. So much Israel's testimony became little more to us than a testimony of defiance, rebellion, a severe lack of self-discipline, indulgence, and judgment. And furthermore, what we learn from the Israelites is that just because God has blessed you with all kinds of privileges. Maybe he has blessed your work. Maybe he has blessed our church. Maybe he has blessed someone else's church or your ministry that you do in church or whatever else. Just because he has blessed it doesn't mean you are running well or will run well. It doesn't mean even that you are faithful. What it means is that God is blessing it to suit whatever sovereign purposes he might have. Israel didn't. Israel didn't. They weren't disciplined and they got disqualified. They got disqualified from the race they ran. They ran outside the lines. And so the point of 1 Corinthians 10 is that you would learn at Israel's expense. Israel's blessings are given here as examples that should act like warning beacons to us. Even though God had blessed them, they were disqualified. In verses 1 to 5, Israel is in the wilderness after having been set free from bondage in Egypt while they're on their way to the promised land in ancient Palestine. Verses 1 to 5 is really where we are this morning, but Paul really has the whole thought of his argument from verse 1 all the way to the end of verse 13. And so there are no paragraphs in the Greek language, but if there were paragraphs, it is more likely that this would have been one single paragraph. And uh, by the way, it is uh, an unnatural break to have a chapter beginning at verse 1 of chapter 10 because we see from right in the very beginning, Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren which means this is directly tied in to the discipline of running the Christian race well, running hard, running in a self-disciplined manner, beating your body and make it your slave. Why does Paul discipline himself so severely for the sake of the gospel? For, he says, for, don't stop, just because you got to verse 27, for, I don't want you to be unaware And it's interesting to pay attention to how many alls there are, and yet they were all killed. They all died. They all fell under the discipline of God. All but two. Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else was struck down and prevented from entering the promised land. Nobody else could enter. Not even Moses for violating the command of the Lord. Now those who were saved by grace through faith, 
Just like we are saved by grace through faith, they didn't fall out of their eternal security. They weren't barred from heaven, but they were barred from the promised land, experiencing the judgment of God. Everyone else had to die off, so only their descendants would enter the land because in their arrogance they put God to the test, even though they personally experienced God's incredible salvation. And it is the example of the Jewish nation that Paul begins in verse 1 as the explanation for why he exercised such disciplined self-control. Follow along with me as we read verses 1 to 5, and then we'll also stick verse 6 into here as well because you will understand exactly how these are related together. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. What we have in these first opening verses are five examples of blessings that Israel had, and yet, with the exception of a few, they did not finish well. They didn't finish the race well that they had been called to, And that serves as a warning to us that the God who gives freedom is still a jealous God who does not look lightly on sin. First, they're pretty obvious as we go through them that God led Israel. God led Israel. And just because God has called you to do something, or has led you to do something, ruling aside some of that subjective experientialism, that arbitrary personal word from the Lord that we so often will throw out there that is really nonsensical. Um, God led me. I remember one woman a couple of years ago, and she was absolutely adamant that God was leading her to the Philippines to be a missionary, deserting her husband and her family, by the way, in the process. Absolutely adamant. And she was counseled against it. She was shown in God's Word how God does not contradict His Word and that she has other responsibilities. And her husband was quite certain that God was not leading him to go to be a missionary in the Philippines but she wouldn't submit to him. And so she was adamant that God was leading her because she had this subjective experientialism that was her ultimate authority over the Word of God, and so she went. She went. So ruling that kind of thing out, supposing, giving you the point that God has called you, God has led you, because he does call and he does lead. 
he calls you and has led you to do something, that doesn't mean that he's pleased by the manner that you fulfill what he has called you to do. And just because God has called you to do something doesn't mean that you have the freedom to do it however you want. And just because God has called you to do something and there seems to be great blessing and fruit from your labor doesn't mean that God is pleased with what you are doing and how you are doing it. For 400 years, Israel labored in slavery in Egypt after Joseph's wisdom was forgotten. And God kept his promises to them. And interestingly enough, even during that time of tremendous hardship, God used it for good to bring the Hebrew race to maturity as a nation. If you turn over to Exodus chapter 1, it'll be helpful for us because Paul's audience, the Jews, would have had a much greater familiar uh, familiarity with their Old Testaments than we would have. And it is most likely that even the uh, Gentile church in Corinth would be more familiar with their Old Testament than we are at this point. And in Exodus chapter 1, we read, starting in verse 8, Now, a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us, and fight against us, and depart from the land." So they appointed taskmakers over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. One family. One family. By Exodus chapter 12, verse 37... When Moses led them out of Egypt after God sent ten miraculous plagues and judgment on the Egyptians until Pharaoh let them go, turned into millions. Exodus 12.37 actually says that there were 600,000 men on foot aside from children. 600,000 men on foot aside from children. So the children are accounted for in this number. Whatever that number would have been. That would have substantially increased the number of 600,000 for one thing, but also there would have been at least that number in women and probably a lot more than that because what happened 80 years before? According to Exodus chapter 7, verse 7, Moses was 80 when God called him to speak to Pharaoh. What happened 80 years before when Moses was born? There was an edict that was given. Do you remember what it was? The Pharaoh said in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, that every son that was born was to be cast into the Nile, and every daughter was to be kept alive. What's that going to do? What's that going to do? Well, it's going to decrease the male population, isn't it? And yet, by Exodus chapter 12, there are 600,000 men on foot, at least that number of women, at least that number of children. And so we're looking at millions of people that have exploded even under the oppressive hand of the Egyptians. And in fact, in accordance with the manner that they oppressed them, they grew exponentially 
They've responded to their oppression with more births. They grew. So God, in His perfect timing, miraculously delivered Israel, leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That was the event that the Corinthians would have been reminded of when Paul talks about their fathers under the cloud in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. And by the way, there's a continuity in Paul's mind when it comes to the people of God. He, he associates the Corinthians' fathers, Gentiles, with these fathers. You have the fathers of Israel and the people of God, the church, all those who are spiritual descendants of those who were under the cloud. And remember, Paul says, our fathers were all under the cloud. Even though not of them were not all of them were saved spiritually, all of them were saved physically, as far as the people of Israel were concerned. They had blessing. All the people of Israel experienced this tangible blessing from God. They had all been led out of the land of Egypt in accordance with God's perfect timing and using the ill motivations of men for good, just like he did with the life of Joseph. They were God's chosen people as a nation, but as a nation, they were never spiritually saved. Never spiritually saved as a nation. Only those who believe by faith were ever given spiritual life in the nation of Israel. The nation itself wasn't. They were God's chosen people as a nation. They were saved physically as a nation. They were blessed physically as a nation. But spiritual salvation only has ever come by one way, and that is through our Lord Jesus Christ. So don't get confused about that. But they were all called out, and they were led to the land that was promised to their forefather Abraham, and they were to be God's witnesses to the world as all the nations came to them to see the source of their blessing. That was the race that was set before them. The race that Paul talks about believers have in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 27. The race that we are to run in such a way that we might win the prize. The nation of Israel was to live faithfully, worshiping God in Israel. And all the nations of the earth would come to them to see the God who would bless them so abundantly. But it wasn't long before the Hebrews began grumbling, was it? It's fascinating. They came to the Red Sea with Pharaoh in pursuit. And they became very frightened in Exodus chapter 14. And by the way, it is the Red Sea, not the Reed Sea. In case you've been reading from liberal scholars lately, just keep in mind that it is the Red Sea. Anyway, so they are uh, frightened in Exodus chapter 14. And then in verse 11, they say to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? How sinister is that? 
Egypt was an entire economy that was built around graves. I was reading a little bit about ancient Egypt this last week, actually as I was preparing for this morning's message. And someone said, some say that the Egyptians built the pyramids, but really, the pyramids built Egypt. It was incredible how they mastered the art of building graves. And and the construction of the pyramids largely was what supported their massive economy. And as they started building pyramids in particular, they had to build the slopes at 51.5 degrees exactly in order for the structure to support itself and not fall in. Not fall in and not fall off. Incredibly precise. And its feat is so incredible that engineers are still trying to figure out how they did it. They mastered the process of mummification as well because they believed that if your spirit couldn't recognize its own body after decay, it would be lost forever. I mean, because, I mean, your, 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 your spirit isn't going to stay in your household after it passes on, just like you don't stay in your household in this life, right? So the spirit would kind of wander around, go around wherever the spirit would go, and then it would return, and then, well... There's a bunch of decayed bodies here. I, I don't recognize mine. And the spirit would forever be at unrest. And so that was where the process of mummification became very, very important to them. That's why they, that's why they um, mastered the process of mummification. And so the Israelites, in verse 10, they cry out to the Lord for help. God, please help us. And I love this. Then they go to... Moses, you know, the servant of God. People seem to be a whole lot more willing to speak their minds to God's servant than they are to God. And so they say to him, you, God, please help us. You, Moses, you, what's your problem? Was there a problem with the graves? Were there not enough of them in Egypt? What are you doing? Never mind that God called Moses to do this very thing. It was pretty obvious after the ten plagues what God wanted them to do, wasn't it? Well, the servant. Servant is, well, he's, he's someone they can go after. How does Moses respond? What happens? In Exodus chapter 14, verse 13, Before we get to that, understand this scene. Because God had just called Israel to leave. And they left confidently. Chapter 4 says the people of Israel ravaged the Egyptians. They left with incredible amounts of wealth. All that the Egyptians had taken from them. Then God... God takes them out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, in the desert, they are told to turn back. God tells Moses to turn them back and camp before Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, and then camping in front of Baal-Zephon, opposite it by the sea. And so God tells Moses to do this because he wants, the, he wants Pharaoh to think that they're lost. He wants Pharaoh to think that they're just wandering aimlessly throughout all of the wilderness. Why? Why is that important? 
Because then Pharaoh would conclude, well, God got them out, but God's no longer with them. Therefore, it is safe for me to go after them. Their defense is gone. So Pharaoh builds up his confidence, and he goes out in pursuit of the Israelites to strike them down, bring them back. He gets his chariot ready, takes a massive army, 600 select chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. And he chases the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel are going out boldly. And now you have these two mountains, Pihahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon, and, uh, and then also, um, uh, I lost the other mountain, whichever other mountain was there too. Uh, my eyes skipped uh, along. And, and anyway, so they're, um, they're on the two sides of these two mountains. One is on the east, one is on the west. They're, they're acting like barricades. They're acting like fortresses. Hedging the people of Israel in. You have the sea, the Red Sea to the north. They have nowhere to go. And you also have Pharaoh's army now to the south. Where are they going to go? They're locked in. This was a, a, a devastating move strategically. They're completely hedged in on all sides. They can't go east. They can't go west. They can't go north. And now they can't go south. And so, so that's why the Israelites are now so afraid. They're awestruck, and that's also why Pharaoh had the confidence to eliminate them, to completely annihilate them. But Moses says to them, Do not fear, verse 13. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. And I guess maybe Moses lied. They did see them dead on the shore. Well, of course Moses didn't lie, but I'm I'm being a little bit facetious. The point is, God honored his word. There was no cause to fear. Moses says in verse 14, The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And they go out, they cross the Red Sea, Pharaoh goes out, pursues them, and God brings his cloud that was leading them, uh, which is now we're, we're actually moving into the, this second uh, example, the second picture of God's blessing in spite that of the fact that Israel would receive God's judgment as they enter into the Red Sea. They're crossing the Red Sea. They're moving along. And, uh, and in fact, it is about... Uh, about a half mile wide, and the Egyptians chase after them, and the cloud brings great confusion to the Egyptian army. They, they become confused. They become terrified. And in verse 18, <clears throat> God says, The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And then they are completely wiped out as the Israelites watched. Now, Israel had just been saved nationally. And for Christians, 
This would become an illustration of how God works out his spiritual salvation in us. In fact, if you turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, very familiar passage to us. Paul writes, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so these terms that Paul uses here would not have been lost on the original audience. Rescued, redemption, would have been words that were directly affiliated with the scene in Exodus chapter 14, when God redeemed and rescued his people of Israel. He rescued them physically, and they would forever become then an illustration of what happens to us spiritually. God acts. Israel had no hope. Israel, by the way, didn't even ask God to rescue them, did they? God determined that the Israelites would be His chosen nation. And they wanted to go back to Egypt. But God still rescued them. And so the scene in Colossians 13 and 14 is that God offers a salvation that rescues us from the domain of darkness, rescues us from a scene of hopelessness with barricades on all sides, nowhere to go, nowhere to find hope, nowhere to find salvation. And he rescues us, he redeems us, monergistically, apart from ourselves. The Spirit of God changes us in order that we would become worshipers of him. The nation of Israel is given all this same thing in a physical kind of sense. The nation of Israel misuses its freedom that God gave them. Falls into idolatry, all kinds of immorality and rebellion. So Paul says to the Corinthians, don't let that be you. What ultimately happened to the Israelites? They died. They fell under judgment. They were not allowed to enter the promised land except for two. And Paul says, don't let that be you. Obviously not in the sense that they could lose their salvation. But what Paul is communicating is that the one who falls out of self-discipline is one who has shown himself never to have been one who's been rescued and redeemed. They've never had salvation. But God will keep, but the ones he keeps will be self-disciplined. But that doesn't mean that for the Christian, oh, well, since God has saved me, God has rescued me, I've received a great blessing from the Lord, and therefore I can live whatever way that I want to, exercising my freedoms without consideration that the transgressions I may fall into 
given the abuse of those freedoms. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, for this reason, many of you are sick and weak, and a number sleep. And in other words, many of you Corinthians, because you are not running your race, your race well, have likewise been struck down by the Lord and killed, been taken out. The Lord struck you dead as a mercy, lest you heap up for yourself greater judgment, even for the redeemed. So we are to avoid Israel's mistakes. That's all we, that we have time for tonight, believe it or not. We're going to pick it up here next time. We're going to continue to look at, at these other scenes and, uh, and more uncover what Paul means when he says that the Corinthians, these believers, can fall under the judgment of God like the Israelites did if they follow, follow after them rather than being faithful and following after Paul's way of self-discipline, being baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and drinking all the same spiritual food, drinking all the same spiritual drink, drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, the rock being Christ, and yet God not being pleased with them. Certainly we want to live a life that is pleasing to God, the one who has redeemed us, the one who has bought us, saved us from our sin. Let's close in prayer. We're going to continue to follow the same format for tonight. I'm going to lead you in a prayer of thanksgiving. Greg is going to lead you in a general prayer for our missionaries and so that you can pray for them. Uh, more specifically, you have some of those particular needs um, made available to you, and, and you can continue to pray um, for our missionaries in whatever, whichever way you desire. Tom is going to lead us in intercession for our people, and then you can continue to pray and intercede on the behalf of others and for our church. And, and then Pastor Robert will come and close this as well. Father, we are so thankful, Lord, for the work that you have done. Uh, we know that uh, the people of Israel were undesirable. The picture in Scripture is that of a baby that was born that no one wanted and was thrown then in the weeds by the wayside of the road, still covered in blood, with his umbilical cord still attached, just worthless and despised by all the nations, by all the people of the earth, repulsed even. And yet you have taken her up, cleansed her off, nurtured her, raised her as your own. And then when she came of age, after suffering for so many years in bondage in Egypt, you took her in to be your bride to be your holy people and bless them abundantly. And so you have done with us, Lord. We are a people who are stubborn and obstinate, undesirable, wretched and filthy, pungently odorous, absolutely undesirable in the worst imaginable ways. 
And yet you have chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. You've chosen us to be your servants. You have rescued us and redeemed us. You've cleansed us by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one way that we can respond to that, Father, and that is with hearts of gratitude that serve you wholeheartedly. And we thank you for your faithfulness even though we falter and we stumble. So often we prove our fickleness again and again just like Israel. But you are faithful. And just as you are faithful to fulfill your promise that you will one day restore your people of Israel. And you will preserve for yourself a remnant. So also will you keep us. No lamb of yours will be lost. And we give glory and worship to you for these things as we are reminded of them tonight. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website, If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, all rights reserved.